Well, good morning. Why don't I, uh, why don't I go ahead and just begin by praying, asking for God's help uh, before we study. Father, we are so thankful uh, to be here this morning. We're thankful that you've given us a church where we can worship with uh, our family this morning. Thank you for your word, uh, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you took the initiative and you've given us uh, your word that we can see you, study you, uh, be amazed by you, and it will take our whole lives <laughs> to understand you. So, Father, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you come open our eyes this morning as we study Isaiah, and uh, we want to behold wonderful things this morning from your law. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, we are in the uh, middle of studying Isaiah for, uh, we'll have five weeks in Isaiah. So last week was just basically an introduction to Isaiah, and I wanted to spend just a little bit of time kind of informally getting some feedback from you all, seeing if that you had any questions about the structure of Isaiah. Last week we talked about the historical setting for the book, the, uh, the structure of the book in terms of the outline, how it's laid out, some of the characters in the book, the nations. And if, if you see on your outline, I've, I've given for you again the outline of the book. And just wanted to recap a couple of things. Isaiah is a unique book in its structure. Uh, it typically is divided in two parts, the first part being the judgment section, chapters 1 through 39. And then the second part being the salvation section, chapters 40 to the end, uh, 66. So Isaiah wrote the book. His name means Yahweh is salvation, which is kind of the key for understanding the whole book, that God is the one who initiates and God will save his people. So um, before I start, is there anything that, that you had questions about or anything that was unclear from last week? Crystal clear. <laughs> I, I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that. Well, um, go ahead. Is there something? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it is a wonder. It's an amazing book. Uh, today, you can see. Today, we are going to be talking about the Holy One of Israel. This is just an amazing study, um, and I hope that God opens your eyes to see it, uh, like He did for me. Uh, so today, we are going to be reading about a day in Isaiah's life that changed his life forever. Um, this one day, at, towards, the, towards the early years of his life, something happened to him that nearly killed him, and he would never forget it for the rest of his life. And that day was when he saw the Holy One of Israel, uh, God, in all his blazing glory. And he never forgot what he saw. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, what I've done for you on your outline, all I've done, very simple outline, uh, all I've done is broken chapter 6 down into very, basically verse by verse, just giving you a place to jot some notes down as we're going through chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah is unique, to say the least. So why don't I go ahead and read just the beginning I'm just going to read the first half of the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. Uh, In this passage, Isaiah is given a glimpse into the inner throne room of God, as it were. And this passage is unique, but it stands among a handful of passages in in the Bible where men are given a vision of God uh, in just a glimpse of his glory. This is by no means the full glory of God, but it's it's just merely a glimpse of it. And what he saw nearly killed him, just from the glimpse that he saw. Men like uh, Job, Moses, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, there were a handful of men in all of human history who saw this, and basically they all reacted the same way. (laughs) They all either fell down as a dead man, or they repented of their sins. Um, None of them were smiling, (laughs) none of them were laughing when they saw God, all of them were humbled almost to the point of death. So as I said earlier, uh, Isaiah, this is a day that Isaiah never forgot for the rest of his life. I just want to remind you, this book of Isaiah covers a 50-year, life, a 50-year span of his ministry. And what we're reading today is his first day on the job, right? This is the day he began his ministry. Uh, King Uzziah died in the year 740 B.C., And Isaiah would be a prophet for the next 50 years or so, okay? So this is day one when he begins his ministry. And if you look further down, the evidence of that is in verse 8, when uh, God calls him, basically says, who who is there who who will go and speak for me? And Isaiah calls out, responds, here I am, send me. So this is day one, and this book that we're reading covers a 50-year span if you remember, there's a unique phrase in the book of Isaiah that's rare in the rest of the Bible. It's called the Holy One of Israel. Okay? That phrase is used 24 times in Isaiah, and it's only used five other times in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? So the Holy One of Israel is basically unique to Isaiah. What's also interesting is that that phrase he uses throughout the whole of his book. It's not isolated to just a single part of Isaiah, but rather the whole of the book, meaning that for the next 50 years of Isaiah's life, he kept remembering this day from 50 years ago when he saw the Holy One of Israel. So, um, just amazing. What I want to do today is just slowly walk through the first half of chapter 6, just to open it up and see the holiness of God, what he has revealed to us here, because it's important for the rest of the book of Isaiah. Let me read you this quote from one commentator. He said, The whole of the, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah has a theology of holiness exactly as if it all depended on the truth enunciated in chapter 6. Okay? The whole of the book hinges on what he sees here in chapter 6. So with that, I just want to walk through verse by verse and just open this up so you can see the glory of God here. So let's start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. King Uzziah was a prosperous king. He was a, a uh, generally good king in, in, in Judah's history. You remember he was the king of the southern tribe, Judah. He reigned for 52 years. He had a long reign. Okay, he was prosperous. And you can read about him if you want in Second Chronicles 26. Uh, gives a, a full chapter dedicated to King Uzziah. And uh, Judah prospered under his reign. He built uh, siege towers. He built up the army. It was really a prosperous time. And so when he died, it was somewhat of a national tragedy. If you can imagine, uh, our, king, our kings only last for four to eight years <laughs> here in America, but uh, other, king, other countries which have monarchs, uh, like England, for example, 
to have a king reigning for 52 years, the day he, he or she dies is a uh, major tragedy, especially when the king has been uh, prosperous. He has brought unity to the country. And so this was a time of crisis in the land of Judah, which is exactly why that's the year which God revealed himself in all his glory to Isaiah. The nation was in a crisis, and they needed to remember something, right? They needed to remember that even though this king had died, there was another king on his throne who would never die, right? That's what he sees. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, and the only ones who sit on thrones are kings, right? So I want you to um, make one note about King Uzziah. If you remember, he didn't end very well his reign towards the end of his kingship. He got impatient, and he went into the temple and actually offered incense on the altar. And um, some godly men, the priests, went in to confront him and told him, Uzziah, you're not supposed to be in here. Kings don't do this. Only the priests do this. And actually, as a result, God judged him by giving him leprosy. So, actually, what we find out is King Uzziah, for about the last 10 years of his life, uh, was still technically king, but his son was reign, kind of co-reigning with him. He ended his life kind of in obscurity uh, because of his leprosy. As you know, the, uh, they were separated from the rest of the nation. So, uh, Matthew Henry makes this comment, King Uzziah dies in a hospital, but the king of kings still sits upon his throne. And that's what, that's what God, uh, that's the reason God chose this year uh, to, to reveal himself to Isaiah, to remind Isaiah that even though your king has died, I'm still on the throne. I want you to please note the throne itself. We're given two adjectives about the throne. It is high and it's lifted up, meaning that it is high above every other throne. Kings of every nation sit on thrones, but there's only one throne that's above every other throne. It's high and lifted up, indicating his power and his sovereignty, which is a major theme in the book of Isaiah. I told you last week there's some uh, nations moving around that you have to keep track of in Isaiah. There's Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. And what we find out in Isaiah is that God is the one behind all of the nations, moving them as he pleases. Uh, if you look back at just one chapter, go back to Isaiah 5, 26. It might even be on the same page. L listen to this. This is God. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. It's almost degrading, isn't it? Like, the nations are like animals. He just whistles, and the entire nation does as God commands. We see this in chapter 10 of Isaiah, where we find out that Assyria, the entire nation of Assyria, was simply a tool in God's hand, that he, he commanded Assyria to go and accomplish his purpose, and Assyria obeyed without even knowing that they were being used by God. This is the sovereignty of God, he is moving entire nations. We find out in chapter 46 that Isaiah calls uh, Cyrus. He calls him like a bird of prey. He just says, here, come here, come, here, little, come here, little doggy, come here, little puppy. And the entire nation just moves. And then when, when it's time for them to pass away, he destroys the entire nation uh, in one fell swoop uh, at Jerusalem. So I just wanted you to see the sovereignty of God here. I wanted you to think about the president of the U.S. trying to tell another nation what to do, uh, especially a powerful nation like, I mean, let's just say China. I mean, is there any way that the nation of China would obey what our president told him to do? Not a chance. And yet, when God whistles, nations obey without even knowing it. They obey submissively. This is the power, the sovereignty of God, and his throne is high and lifted up. I want you to look at verse 2 because, um, actually, actually, not yet verse 2, but the train of the robe filled his temple. 
Of course, you know, if you've read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, you know that the train of the robe is a symbol of the dignity of the, of the king or the queen. Um, the longer the robe, the more majestic is the king or the queen. It's just a symbol of how powerful and elevated they are. And the train of the Lord's robe filled the entire temple, signifying his dignity, his power, his majesty. If you look at verse 2, he's not alone in the throne room. Isaiah sees other beings in the throne room. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Uh, This is just another picture of a throne room. Uh, Typically, even even in today, throne rooms are usually attended by other people. There's attendants, there's cupbearers, there's um, uh, other people there serving the king, waiting on the king. But no earthly throne room has the attendance that the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, has in his throne room. He has seraphim. There's some number of seraphim, probably more than two, probably an innumerable amount. Uh, We're not given a number here. But these seraphim are uh, angels, put simply, they're angels, and they are unique angels. It seems like their only purpose is to worship around the throne of God. And we see them in other visions, like in Revelation chapter 4, we see these creatures around the throne of God where it seems like their only purpose is to worship God. That's all they do, day and night, continually worshiping God. I want you to note their wings. (laughs) Their wings are something interesting to behold. They have six of them. They have two that cover their face. They have two that cover their feet. And they have two with with which they fly. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts here. Why would they have four wings that do nothing but cover parts of their body? What are your thoughts? How many of you have read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God? Okay, maybe half of you. Okay. The whole book um, essentially is built off of Isaiah chapter 6. It's worthy, worthy to read. Why, why do you think? Why, why would these angels have four wings, which all they do are, they're like vestigial wings. All they do is cover parts of their body. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, if you think about the sun, okay, the sun, just to reiterate uh, what Rob said, was to shield themselves from the glory of God. I mean, you think about the sun, how long can you look at the sun? (laughs) And we are millions and millions and millions of miles away from the sun, right? And we can't even look at it for more than 10 seconds, (laughs) right? So these angels cannot even look at God. In fact, Isaiah is seeing something that even the angels don't see. The angels have wings in front of their eyes, but Isaiah sees him with his own eyes, uh, which, <laughs> which explains why he reacts as he does. These angels, what's unique about them is they're sinless creatures, right? So they're sinless. There's no sin in them, and yet they can't even look at the glory of God. They can't look at it. Um, There's another potential reason why they have these wings in front of their eyes. Um, We've been been really enjoying the cooler weather recently, so we've been having fires in the middle of the the night. Uh, On Friday evenings, we've been having fires out in our backyard, and it is so beautiful to see the stars at nighttime. Have any of you tried to look for the stars in the daytime? (laughs) Where are they? Have they gone somewhere else? No, they're still there, right? The stars are still there in the daytime, but the overpowering uh, brilliance of the sun just sh- overshadows everything. You can't even see it. I dare you. Try it today after church. Try to look up in the sky and try to find a star. I don't think you can even see one. In the same way, these angels are covering themselves as if to say, it doesn't matter what we look like. You're not supposed to be looking at us. Uh, 
you're supposed to be looking at the one on the throne. And do you think Isaiah, when he's standing there taking all this in, do you think he's sitting there wondering, I wonder what those seraphim look like. I wish they could like move their wings so I could see what they look like. Not at all. He is, it's almost surprising that he's able to describe the seraphim because of how overpowering the vision of the one on the throne is. So it's a good application for us whenever, uh, whenever someone is tempted to give us glory for something that we've done. Um, God will not share his glory with others, right? It is deadly to stand in front of people and accept glory for yourself. That's what killed King Herod, right? He stood before people, and he did not acknowledge God and give glory to him. In the same way, these seraphim stood as covering themselves as if to say, don't look at me, look at the one on the throne. If you, I just One more note about, and this isn't the main point of the passage, but it is interesting. There's one more note about the number of wings they have. Okay, they have six wings, but four of them are used for worship, and only two of them are used for working. Okay? Four are used for adoration, only two are used for action. Okay? So it, again, it's instructive for you and I, how many wings are we using for ministry, and how many wings are we using for just worshiping God? These angels, they had more wings for worshiping God than they did for actually obeying his commands, flying around. We don't want to dig too much into that, but it's interesting to note. Let's move on to the next verse and see what these angels are doing. They are calling one to another, and they say, uh, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you understand the picture here, there are seraphim on one side of the throne and there are seraphim on the other side of the throne. And it's almost like they're calling back to one another. One calls out, the other calls out. And it's almost like this continual Day and night repetition. That's what we see in Revelation 4. Day and night, all they're doing is calling, worshiping God. And what they say is incredible. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the, uh, the, the threefold repetition here is a literary device to emphasize a uh, truth. Uh, Jesus does this in the New Testament when he says, Verily, verily, I say to you. Everything that Jesus said was important, but there are some things he said where he prefaced it by saying, Verily, verily. He repeated the word twice. Uh, it's the same thing here. It's as, it's as if they're saying God is holy, holier, holiest. That is to say, it's, he is raised to the third degree in terms of his holiness. But what exactly is his holiness? Do, do any of you have a, a, a simple definition? What, what does the word holy mean? Set apart. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Set apart. Separate. In what ways is God separate or set apart? Yeah, that's right. He is God, he is creator, everyone else is creation. What, what other ways is God set apart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are really the two main categories of how God is holy. Okay, he is, uh, in terms of his being, he is creator, everyone else is creation, and that's his moral purity. He is morally pure. Everyone else, in terms of humans, uh, we are all not morally pure. And that explains why the seraphim actually have to cover their eyes. Because even though the seraphim are sinless beings, they are still creation, right? There is still an infinite gap between God and an angel. Because an angel can't create things. An angel is a created being. I want you to see um, a couple 
um, cross-references in Isaiah, because again, the reason I'm laboring on this is really the whole of Isaiah uh, is founded on the holiness of God. So if you turn to chapter 45, I want you to see, again, these two categories of holiness. He is uh, holy in his creator creation, and he's holy in his moral attributes. So Isaiah 45, 11 Isaiah 45:11 Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. That is, uh, sorry, in context, he's talking about Cyrus, the one who formed Cyrus. Okay, verse 11. Ask of me, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. You can see here that there is the, there's only one who formed the earth, right? There's only one creator, God, and he is the Holy One of Israel. That's what makes him holy. He's set apart, completely different than everything else. And again, I mentioned the Holy One of Israel is an important phrase and uh, it would be worthy for you to underline every time you see it in the book of Isaiah uh, to draw your attention to it. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 5, I want you to see the other way in which God is holy, that is, in his moral purity. Verse 16 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 16. Um, actually, I'll go back up to 15. You can see the contrast, 5.15. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. That is to say, God demonstrates his holiness in his righteousness. That's how we see he is holy, because he has no sin in him. He is morally pure. So those are the, kind of the two categories of how God is holy. Now, if you go back to chapter 6, there's one more thing I wanted to point out about what the angels are saying. They are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Okay, so the God that we serve, Yahweh, if you notice it's all capital letters, Lord. Yahweh is the captain of an army, the Lord of hosts. He is the commander of an entire army. And we see that. Well, what army does he command? Well, he commands angels, entire angels. The legions of angels are at his beck and call. And he even commands nations unwittingly, like I mentioned from Isaiah chapter 10. Unwittingly, God is the commander, the Lord of the host of heaven and earth. That's the holiness that we see from the angels, what they cry day and night. I want you to see the response to their cry in the next verse. So what happens when these angels are crying out day and night? What does Isaiah record for us? It's in verse 4. Isaiah tells us that the foundations of the thresholds, the temple where he's having this vision, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So not only uh, does this vision of God terrify people uh, who, who behold it, but in fact, inanimate objects are so affected by the glory of God that they actually shake themselves. The foundations, the, uh, the walls of the temple were shaking. And this makes us, this makes us uh, call to mind uh, God when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, right? Do you remember that terrifying scene, the Mount, the Mount Sinai, where thunder and lightning, there was an earthquake, the mountain was shaking with the presence of God, said the mountain was filled with smoke in Exodus 19 and 20. This is a common reaction to the glory of God. 
just an incontrollable shaking of even inanimate objects. And in fact, he hasn't even spoken yet. Uh, the commentators understand verse 4 as the voice of the seraphim. So this is the voice of the seraphim speaking, and this isn't even the voice of God yet. Uh, not only does the foundation of the threshold shake, but the house, that is the temple, fills with smoke. Do you have any thoughts on why God would have brought this smoke into the temple? Does this make you think of anything else in the Bible in terms of smoke being in the temple? The altar? Yeah, so explain, explain more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's, that's exactly right. If you, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced even. If you look at, go back to Leviticus 16. I just want you to see this. Um, I think it's worth turning to. Leviticus chapter 16. This is the day of the atonement. One of the most significant days in the Jewish sacrificial, sacrificial calendar. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. And I won't summarize it too much other than one day a year, the high priest would go into the temple to make atonement for the sins of the nation. If you look at verse 13, God is giving instructions for what should be done. Uh, the context is Aaron. Aaron, verse 13, shall put incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. <laughs> die. Such was the holiness and glory of God that this smoke was necessary almost as a shield, like a filter, so that the high priest does not see with unfiltered eyes because then he would die. He could not be in the temple without this smoke screen, as it were, without dying. And that is likely the same thing that's going on here that Isaiah is seeing. Um, Aaron, you're right. It's, it's associated with the sacrifice. That's exactly right. And it's acting probably as a smoke screen so that Isaiah doesn't, uh, doesn't die before the coal is able to brought, be brought to him. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that could be as well. That's right. He can't, he's too holy to look on sin. That's what the Bible says. So, um, so we're about to get to Isaiah's response, uh, but, but before we get to that, just a second, I just want you to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. How would you respond to what you've seen and heard. And this is, like I said, probably a mere fraction of what Isaiah felt. Um, it is likely that he was not able to fully take in everything he was seeing because he was so focused on the throne, barely had time to describe these. He probably wouldn't have even described these angels had they not been involved in, in speaking this um, declaration of God's holiness. Just imagine what it would have been like for you to stand before Isaiah, or sorry, stand before the Lord, high and lifted up, this throne, the largest throne you've ever seen. The ground is shaking. The room is filled with smoke. Um, it's easy to see why Isaiah responded the way he did, is it not? There's a, there's a popular song that came out a few years ago uh, called I Can Only Imagine. You know that song? I'm sure, I'm sure you know that song. The entire song is talking about what, what will it be like one day when I stand before God? Will I, will I dance? Will I, um, will I be, sing praises to him? Will I fall on my knees and worship? He gives a list of, of, in the song, he gives a list of a number of things. I wonder, will it be like this? Will it be like that? Okay, the one thing he doesn't mention in that song is will I fall down like a dead man and curse myself. <laughs> okay. But that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. It's exactly what happened to Daniel when Daniel saw the terrifying vision of a man. Okay. In the Bible, when we see 
men seeing God, they're not dancing, they're not um, laughing, they're terrified at the glory of God. Okay, now we'll, we'll talk in just a second about should we be terrified or is there another response that we could have? But let's look at how Isaiah responded in the next verse, <clears throat> verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah responds in sheer terror to the sight of God. Why? Why does he respond in terror? Do you see those words for? Those are helpful. Why does he respond in terror? His sin, yeah. It's like taking a wax candle and just getting closer and closer to the sun, right? <laughs> I mean, even on earth, a wax candle might begin to melt if you set it outside. Can you imagine if you got it even, you know, a hundred miles closer to the sun? Just completely melt, not even close. You can't even get that close without it just melting. Okay, Isaiah sees his sin. I am lost for because I am a man of unclean lips. The implication is God is not unclean. He's not unclean. I am unclean. The two don't go together. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm not the only one. We're all unclean, all of us together. All of our good deeds are like filthy rags, right? Are you seeing the bigger picture of Isaiah here? All of our good deeds are like filthy rags, unclean. Uh, Isaiah, I want you to notice Isaiah's response. He doesn't say, uh, you know, generally I'm a good person. I just, uh, I just, I only have unclean lips. My lips are the only unclean thing about me. Other than that, I'm a good person, right? That's not how he responds. He also doesn't say, um, I'm better than everyone else, right? Yes, I'm unclean, but look at the other people around me. They are much more unclean than me. Okay, on that day when, when we stand before God, there will be no excuses given, even from our own lips. Pastor Dan preached a couple weeks ago about the law. Every, every mouth will be stopped that day when we stand before God. There will be no excuses given. Every mouth will be stopped. And in fact, it's important to see who the pronouncement of judgment comes from. God, up until this point, has not even spoken yet. It is just the vision of God that produces this pronouncement of judgment from Isaiah himself. There's no denying, he's not denying that he is unclean, and God hasn't even said anything. One commentator has said this, It is a deadly thing for a sinner to be found in the presence of the Holy One. No sentence needs to be pronounced from the throne Conscience declares personal and national guilt and its consequence. Our conscience, every man, woman, and child's conscience that day will bear to the fact that none of us is clean. All of us, when we stand before God, will say, yes, we are unclean in, of our, in and of ourselves. I want you to see how he refers to God he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Uh, no adjective is needed to tell what kind of king this is. This isn't the king of Judah. This isn't the king of Assyria. This isn't the king of this land. He just calls him the king, right? There's no need to explain which land this king is the king over because he's the king of the entire universe. He's the Lord of hosts, the captain of an army. This is Isaiah's response, and it would be the same response if you and I were in the same, in the same room. But God doesn't leave him there, right? This picture, this chapter, is really just a microcosm of the entire book of Isaiah. 
judgment first, salvation second. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, and we see that here. God is the one who takes the initiative to save a sinful man. So look at what he does in verse, <clears throat> verse 6. I'll read 6 and 7 together. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So there must have been either an unspoken command or, or a command that Isaiah didn't hear. But for some reason, in some way, God indicated the seraphim to go save this man. So the seraphim flies to the altar with some tongs, grabs a coal, and then flies to Isaiah and touches his lips. What's significant about his lips? Why does he touch his lips? Yeah, that's right. Out of the, out, out of the overflow of uh, the heart, the mouth speaks. That's right. What else do we get from the text here? That's what he said. I'm a man of unclean lips. The sin that he professed is my lips are dirty. They need to be cleaned. And uh, so his confession of sin, God applies this balm, this coal, right at the place of where Isaiah confessed his weakness and his sin. Right there. And the effect of the coal is instant, instantaneous. Uh, because he says in verse 7, this has touched your lips and your guilt, past tense, is taken away. Instantly, as soon as the coal touched his lips, your sin is atoned for. So this is some magical coal, right? <laughs> uh, I wish we had some coal like this lying around that we could just you know, touch our body with and be instantly, not just outwardly, but inwardly cleansed from our sin. Of course, this isn't a magical coal, right? What... <laughs> And we know that. What is, what is significant about this coal? What did you say? From the altar. And what happens at the altar? Sacrifice. That's right. It's a symbol. It's pointing to something that had already happened. Um, do any of you know symbols that we do regularly here at church which point to something else? That's right. The Lord's Supper. And what a happy providence that today is the day we're reading Isaiah 6. It's the same day we're having communion, the Lord's Supper. There is nothing magical about the bread and the juice, okay? It does not atone for your sin. In the same way that this sacrifice in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices did not do a single thing in and among themselves. Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot Take away your sin, right? So this coal, which came from the altar, was pointing to a sacrifice that was bigger and in fact yet to come that had not happened yet. But such was the sacrifice that it could cleanse this whole man. It could atone <clears throat> for his sins. Do you know what the word atone means? I almost gave it away with my hands. Do you know what the word atone means? To cover, yeah. Just <clears throat> to cover Isaiah's sins were covered by this coal, which was pointing to the one, I'm just going to give it away, the once for all finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. That's from Isaiah 53, right? All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is from Isaiah 53. And that is how sinful man can stand before a holy God. Christ is the bridge between a sinful man and a holy God. I want you to notice the mercy and justice of God here. When Isaiah proclaims, I'm a sinful man, God does not say, it's okay, Isaiah, don't worry about it. Everyone has unclean lips. It's okay. I'm not uh, going to hold it against you. Okay, he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, yes, you are unclean, 
I'm going to cast you away from my presence forever. Do you see the mercy and justice? Through the sacrifice of Christ, God can be merciful. He can extend mercy and love to his people. He can also be satisfied in his justice that no sin goes unpunished. Because every sin will either be punished on us or on Christ. Every sin gets, gets paid for by someone so um, the response of Isaiah, we, we, didn't, we didn't read verse 8, but uh, the response of Isaiah here uh, changes from death to devotion. Do you see that in verse 8? Uh, the Lord says, whom shall I send? And all of a sudden his attitude has completely changed. He says, here I am, send me. He's almost like bursting with enthusiasm because he's been cleansed he wants to go and be used by God however God doesn't even tell him what he's going to be doing yet right Isaiah doesn't know his mission which we learn about is a very difficult mission in 9 verse 9 to the end of the chapter Isaiah doesn't even know his mission he doesn't care he wants to do whatever God needs him to do because out of gratitude and thankfulness he's been cleansed from his sin I want you to see this in verse uh, chapter 57. I think we'll just, um, maybe we'll go here and we'll turn one more place. Again, I'm trying to, trying to give you a bigger picture of the holiness of God throughout all of Isaiah. So if you turn to 57, so I'm having you go to different places. Isaiah 57 is a remarkable picture, verse 15, of how God can be exalted and holy and at the same time, Bring us into communion with him. If you look at 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, this is, what, this is God speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is amazing, is it not? The holiness of God, the throne that he sits on, and yet he inhabits eternity, his name is holy, and yet he dwells with sinners who are humble and contrite. Amazing, amazing. It's only through Christ that we can do that. And, um, and that's what Isaiah 50... We'll get to Isaiah 53 in a couple weeks. But that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. How can a sinful man stand before God without being destroyed? So, um, what, what application is there after reading Isaiah 6? What, uh, what application is there? I don't have this morning uh, three points to improve your marriage. <laughs> Three points to be a better, uh, a better parent. Okay, the application of Isaiah chapter 6 is to sit in reverent awe of God's holiness and what he has done to save you. If you turn one more time, it's the last time I'm going to have you turn somewhere. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is the last chapter of the book. 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Verse, this is verse 2 now of chapter 66. All these things my hand has made. He's holy. And so all these things came to be. I made them, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is the application of Isaiah 6. Do you tremble at his word? When you read Isaiah 6, when you think about the holiness of God, does it make you tremble? Or um, is your sin not a big deal to you? Okay. God does not dwell with those who are not contrite and are not holy. So, uh, that's the question, is do you tremble at his word? That's the one to whom he will look. He will not look to you if you do not tremble at his word. 
So Isaiah's life was forever changed this day. He was never the same. He nearly, actually nearly died this day when he saw this vision of God. And so my question for you is, do you have a covering for your sin? Do you have a covering for your sin? On that day, every mouth will be stopped. There'll be no more excuses. We will stand before God in his full glory, not a vision, no smoke screen between us and him. Uh, we will stand before God on his throne. And uh, if you do not have a covering for your sin, it will not go well with you. Okay? But God is gracious and merciful, and he has provided a covering for your sin if you repent and trust in Christ. That's right? That's right. So if you have already, if you already have a covering for Christ, if you have from Christ, if you have one who has borne your sin, then the response from this is simply gratitude and adoration. And in Isaiah, his response was, send me. I want to go wherever you want me to go. I want to do whatever you want me to do. My life is your life because you have paid for it. That is the response that we should have if you are in Christ, a life of submission uh, and service to God. Amen. So um, I, put, I put the lyrics here to Holy, Holy, Holy. Um, unfortunately, we didn't, have, didn't quite have time to, 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 to sing it. I, I think we should. I think we, anyways, just, if you would, just meditate on these verses here from the, that wonderful hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, It's a wonderful hymn of the greatness of God. Casting down their golden crowns, cherubim and seraphim are falling down before thee. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you in humble reverence. We come to you boldly, um, not in our own merit, but we come because of the, the work of Christ, the sacrificial, propitiatory work of Christ, that now we are your children. Father, we can come to you um, because we have an advocate, a mediator, one who has covered our sin. Father, I pray that... Um, You would give us a greater vision of your holiness. I pray, Father, that we would see your holiness, that we would be in reverence and awe of your holiness, that we would respond in joy and gratitude, um, starting with me, Father, that you would change me. I pray, Father, for our worship service this morning. I pray for Pastor Dan, that you would strengthen him as he preaches. I pray that we would see your holiness and we would see Christ this morning. We pray through his name. Amen.